Praise God. Uh, thank you, Victor. Thanks, Victor, for sharing. Um, yeah, I love that. Um, what a beautiful uh, testimony of God's grace and, and love and His power. Uh, it, that's, God's doing that. He's doing that all the time uh, in, in our midst throughout the world. And so um, if you have any questions, and if you have any questions about what you heard or um, what house church is, what, uh, as Victor talked about, um, ask someone who brought you here, ask somebody at the door. We'd love to, uh, love to get you connected with one that will help you to be able to yeah, experience some of the things that Victor and others have, have experienced. We're um, <clears throat> in the middle of a series, uh, in the middle of a series uh, going through Nehemiah, talking about what it means to rebuild. When you see the, the broken walls around us, the walls that uh, represent um, our identity as a people of God, when you see brokenness around us, um, how do we rebuild? Like, what does it look like to rebuild? Some of us have a burden to do that. Some of us have a desire to do that. Uh, what does that look like? When in, in every uh, rebuilding effort, in every rebuilding effort, there are three kinds of people. When you go to somebody and say, hey, let's, uh, we see the brokenness around. We see the walls that are devastated. We need to rebuild this in order that it can become a better, uh, a better place. Three kinds of people. One, they're the people who are all about construction. They say, yeah, I see the need. I see the brokenness. I see the pain. I see the hurt. I see the places where the walls are, are torn down. We need to get busy building these walls again. There's some people who are like that. They say, yeah, you know what? I want to build the walls. I want to make our church. Or I want to make our world. Or I want to make our youth ministry. I want to make our house church. I want to make my family, my school, my workplace a better place. And we're committed to construction. There are others in the midst of a building, rebuilding project who say, ah, I don't know about that. And they're all about obstruction. They want to obstruct the work that is being done. They say things like, yeah, I don't know about that. You sure you want to do that? Uh, when the people who are all about construction say, let's go build the walls, let's go pray, let's go do these things, uh, these obstructionists are the ones who say, yeah, you know what, I'm going to just kind of go and do my own thing. Why don't we go and do this? Instead of being about constructing, they're about obstructing. Then there's a third group of people. They don't construct, they don't obstruct, but they're all about destruction. There are people who say, you know what? Um, you can't do that. That's hopeless. There's no way that you can rebuild that. That's too far gone. I don't think you should do that. You shouldn't give yourself to that. In fact, if you try to build that up, I'm going to tear it down. Whatever you try to do, uh, I'm going to stand opposed to it. Can I ask you a question? If you've been with us over the past three weeks, as you've been hearing from Nehemiah and the Word of God, what is your heart as you hear about the need for rebuilding the walls that are broken in your life, in our church, in our, uh, in our communities, in the world? Have you been about, yeah, you know what, I want to be a builder. I want to construct. I want to get involved in that. I see the need. I feel the, I feel the burden. I feel the pain, and I want to do something about it. Is that you? Or have you been one who is kind of a hater on other people? saying, you can't do that. Yeah, you know what, you could do that, but I'm not going to support you in that. Have you been about destructing and tearing down walls instead of trying to build them up, talking badly, gossiping, talking trash about other people? Where do you stand as it relates to the building and the rebuilding of the walls? Last week, we saw in Nehemiah chapter 3, there was a group of people in Judah amongst the people of God who were utterly committed to rebuilding the walls. They said, whatever it takes... I will build the walls in front of my own house. I will build the walls in front of other people's houses. In fact, whatever it takes, even if it means that I get the least favorable jobs, I'll be willing to do that for the sake of the people that I love and for the glory of God in my nation, in my city. I will be willing to do that. And if Nehemiah ended with chapter 3, then it would be a really good ending to that story. However, we go on to chapter 4. And we begin to realize that with every great building project, there will be opposition to the task. In fact, starting in chapter 2, we saw that. We saw this as one of our main thoughts. We said, when you rise up to rebuild, the enemy rises up to resist. Okay? There's always opposition. And so starting here for the next four chapters, starting in chapter 3, we see this pattern. Rebuilding the walls, opposition arises. Rebuilding the walls, opposition arises. Today I want to talk about the opposition that we will face if you are committed to rebuilding the walls that are broken for the sake of the glory of God. Nehemiah chapter 4, uh, it's a long chapter and I'm going to um, take a huge step of faith and to trust that every single one of us have been reading Nehemiah throughout the week and so you've read this before. I'm just kidding. But 
I'm going to read chapter uh, 4, verse 1. This is going to be the summary over all of this, and then I'm going to kind of uh, unpack some of these things that you see in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. This is the Word of God. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. We'll go down to verse, uh, verse 3. And in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble, burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, what they're building? If even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their wall of stones. And it goes on throughout the next 20 verses in this way. What do we see about the opposition that we will face? Here's the first thing. Three thoughts here it's in, your, uh, in your bulletin, in the outline. The first thought is this. Rebuilders okay, should expect opposition in every step in the process. If you are committed to rebuilding, okay, again, whether you have a calling to rebuild, you have a conviction to rebuild, or you just hear the command given that you need to be a rebuilder, then you ought to expect that there will be opposition. It is par for the course. Anyone experience opposition as you try to rebuild over the last few weeks? I know you have because I hear from some of us. I know you have because I've faced it. I said this before, and I have been telling this to Olivia, but the first week, the day after, the day after we started this series on Nehemiah 1, I felt this kind of spiritual oppression and opposition and attack in a way that I haven't in a long time. Because there will be opposition when you seek to rebuild that which is broken for the glory of God. It comes in a lot of different ways. When my kids... Uh, my kids, uh, Elijah, our, our five-year-old, he has a couple friends in the neighborhood named Caden and Race, and they like to play together. And one of the things they do is they come over to our house and they play with these blocks and they try to build uh, different edifices and towers and castles and things like that. And, and when they're building these things, um, Elise has her own understanding, our three-year-old, four-year-old now, she has her own understanding of, of what belongs to her and what belongs to other people. And so um, when they come into our house, she believes that everything is hers. And so even if Caden and Ray are building something, uh, she will, oh, you know, we're building this tower, it's going to be this high. She'll go in and she'll take their blocks away from them so that they cannot finish building their building. Right? She is an obstructionist in that way, all about obstruction. <clears throat> and so they get upset at her and, and then she like runs away into her room and they're not going to chase her. They say, well, just let her have those blocks and we'll work with what we've got. There'll be other times when they finish their building they're really excited about their tower, and Elise will come by, and she'll think it's really fun, and she'll think it's funny to go and knock over those blocks, and then they'll run away into her room, because there are other times when she's all about destruction. There's a lot of different ways that opposition will rise up when you seek to build the walls. One time when <clears throat> this boy, Race, was uh, wanting to finish, he just needed a few blocks in order to finish, and Elise was playing with just a few blocks. And he said, Elise, can I have those blocks? And she said, no, I'm using them. And he said, but you're not really doing anything with them. You just have them. Can I have them? And she said, no. And he said, but I need them more than you do. And she said, no, you don't. And he said, yes, I do. And she thought about it. And then her response finally, at the end of it all, she said, but this is my house. <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> she was saying, hey, you're in my house, so you play by my rules. If you don't like my rules, then you can get you and your building project out of here because I'm going to stand against what you're doing. And sometimes, a lot of times, a lot of times, this is what we face in life when we try to rebuild also. Verse 6, look at what it says in verse 6. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. Okay, so 40 feet is the full length of the, the height of the wall, 8 feet deep, 8 feet wide, and two and a half miles, they get to about half the height, 20 feet high, for the people worked with all their heart. We saw that last week. They were working with everything within. They were all hands on deck, and they were all in. Let's do this. Let's build. Let's rebuild the walls with excitement. They get to about the halfway point because they worked with all their heart, so it started out really well. And then what happens? Verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs... The Ammonites and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and the gaps were being closed. 
And they were very angry. In verse 7, as you read this list of people, you can just think this is a, a team of people coming around. But in reality, this is what you see. Sanballat from Samaria is coming from the north. Then you've got Tobiah who's coming from the east, coming from the east. Then you've got the Arabs coming from the south and the men of Ashdod coming from the west. Literally what Nehemiah is saying is from all directions, the opposition is coming. Do you ever feel like that? You want to get your family together. You want to get your church together. You want to rebuild that which is broken. But from all directions, people are coming and they're hating on the building project. They're hating on what you're trying to do. Nehemiah writes these things 2,500 years before our time in order to let you know that you ought to expect this thing to happen. If you think you're just going to rebuild these walls, be nice and done, it'll be simple and go on living your life, he says, you are gravely mistaken because whenever you rebuild, there will be opposition. And it won't just come one time. It will keep on coming throughout the process. You remember Jesus, right? Before he started his ministry, when he was 30 years old, he goes and it says that the, 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 the uh, devil took him into the desert and tempted him. For 40 days, it says he was tempted. Here's what we think. He was out there in the desert fasting for 40 days, and then in one fell swoop, one, two, three temptations come upon him. That's not what the Bible says. In every passage of the Bible that writes it, that records it, it says for 40 days Jesus was tempted. There was a barrage, a litany of body blows to Jesus, of temptation that came to him. And then at the end of those 40 days when Jesus was hungry, here come three of the strongest temptations against Jesus. Who are you? Does God really love you? Do you really need to go to the cross? You can have everything without the cost. All of these temptations came at every step of the journey. And then it says the devil left him until an opportune time in which he would return and unleash all the fury of hell upon Jesus at the cross. If you're, if you're set on rebuilding the walls of God, there will be opposition. And Nehemiah records that. As he writes this in his journal, he said there are three ways, in specific ways, that this might come. And there are a lot of ways that it might come and attack you. But the first thing he says is, there is a, there's fear. Again, verse 1, when Sanballat heard that the Jews were rebuilding the wall, he became angry. Literally, it says he was burning mad. So Sanballat of Samaria, which is where Israel used to be, the kingdom right north of Judah. Why was he so mad? Because he had a direct trade route that went up through Judah, through Jerusalem, that was giving him all kinds of income and money. And so for walls to be built, it hindered the flow of income that was coming into Sanballat and his army and his people and his nation. And so he is hopping mad. Why? Because the rebuilding effort that Nehemiah and his people were doing in Judah would threaten the very lifestyle of the people who are living next door to him. And because of that, he says, you can't do this. And he tried to invoke fear over the people. You know, there are going to be times when you rise up to rebuild that your rebuilding efforts are going to threaten the comfortable lifestyle of people around you and they're going to try to put a stop to what you're trying to do and make you fear what will happen if you rebuild. You see the brokenness at work and so you try to rebuild and there's people who rise up and they say, you know what, if you do this, if you do this, your boss is going to fire you. You know, don't talk, about don't talk about Jesus at school because your teacher is going to fail you for doing that. You want to go to SNF and your parents say, hey, you know what? If you do that, then we don't have our Saturday nights free anymore. We're not going to take you. In fact, we're not even going to take you to church on Sunday anymore then. You can say goodbye to all of your friends because it challenges a comfortable lifestyle in which people are living. And the rebuilding effort that you try to do to try and rebuild my church, to rebuild whatever it is, what about our family time? You got to go to another meeting for church. You got to go to another house church meeting. You have to wake up early to come to Alpha service. Why are you going to do that? Don't you know how important sleep is to me? If you do that, I'm not going to go to church with you anymore. Whenever you try to rebuild, there will be opposition, and sometimes it comes in the way of fear because someone's lifestyle is going to be shaken up by it. Are you willing to continue going on even though there's threats of fear against you? Not only fear, but there's ridicule. You read this. They start talking smack about them. Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? In other words, can God even help them? You know, people say that. You're going through a hard time. You want to do something? I don't think God's going to do that for you. 
God hasn't been answering your prayers up until this point in time. How are you going to do that? You see the brokenness. You want to be a rebuilder of the walls. You know what you got to do, and you get to it, but there's haters who are telling you you can't do it, and they try to invoke fear and ridicule against you. Verse 7, this whole litany of people come, come against them. They realize, they heard that the repairs to the walls had gone ahead, and the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. Listen to the other words in in verse 8. They come and fight against Jerusalem. Verse 9, at the end of it, they might meet this threat. Verse 11, we'll kill them, put an end to the work. Verse 12, they will attack us. Think about this, man. If you're you're one of the people of God trying to rebuild the walls and these things are threatening you, we're going to attack, we're going to kill, we're going to take you off the walls, this is what they were up against. This is what we're up against. Anytime you try to rebuild that which is broken, There will be opposition, not only in the way of fear, but there's also division. It's one thing when from the north, east, south, and west, attack comes from the outside, but there's also division that comes from the inside. Look at what it says in in verse 10. Meanwhile, the people in Judah, okay, that's the rebuilders, said the strength of the laborers is giving out. There's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Verse 12, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. When it says ten times over, literally it's saying over and over and over and over and over and over. There's this constant barrage of people from the inside, from amongst your own people. We're trying to divide the people of God. Some of us saying, let's rebuild. Others saying, why are you being so serious for God? Let's fix our house church. But I like the way it is as a social gathering. We need to stop doing these things. Oh, but I like the way we do these things. Let's revive our youth ministry. Let's pray for that. Oh, but then I won't be able to date this boy or girl. There's division. That's the way the enemy works to oppose the rebuilding efforts even within the way we as a Christian family want to parent and raise our family or the ways that we want to be as a family. There's division amongst, hey, we ought to do it this way. No, we ought to do it this way. And so the walls can never be rebuilt. The enemy attacks in fear, in division, and in discouragement. See this in in verse 10. The strength of the laborers is giving out. Mind you, half the walls are already built. But the strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Are they just now seeing the rubble? It's been there for hundreds of years. You've, in fact, with that rubble, you've built half of the wall. And then all of a sudden, there's discouragement. We can't do this anymore. We're getting weak. We don't know how we're going to make it. Have you faced these things? Have you faced discouragement? As you seek to rebuild, you talk about the things that need to be rebuilt within your particular context. Hey, you know what? I think our Bible study class needs a little bit more of this. You know what? I think our church needs a little bit more of this. And people just begin to discourage you or they put fear in your heart or there's division. This is how the enemy works. It's not the only way, but these are three ways that the enemy works when we rise up to rebuild. And the first thing that we have to understand is that if you are committed to rebuilding, then there will be opposition. You've got to expect that. It's huge. It's important. That's the first thing. The second thing that we see is that opposition gets stronger the more you fight for God's glory. The opposition will only get stronger the more you fight for God's glory. You have to understand that this is the, our proper expectations will determine whether we will continue staying on the walls or not. This is why our expectations always affect our reality. You know, we, <clears throat> before you get married, uh, highly encouraged to do premarital counseling. And one of the things that Couples, as they go through this, always realize this, man, you know what? Marriage is going to be a lot harder than I thought. It's the union of two sinners. And your wedding day is when sinners say, I do. This is what happens. And so two completely sinful people getting together, there will be a collision of sin, a multiplication of that kind of sin, 
unless it goes unchecked. And so when you begin to realize, hey, uh, I know that this is what to expect, then when you get into it, yeah, this is expected. We're going to work through this. But if you think marriage is going to be all roses and everything is going to be great and, you know, there's going to be no issues, as soon as hardship comes, you're going to wonder, did I marry the right person? Your expectations make all the difference in the world. And so the expectation, if you're going to rebuild, is you've got to know that there will be, expect, uh, there will be opposition. There will be. And the sooner you understand that, the longer you will stay on the walls to rebuild. The reason why Nehemiah, if he hadn't expected opposition, he would have fled. They would have left. But he knew that it was going to come, and he said, this is the work of God. It is the plan of God. We have prayed to God. We have prepared with God, and he is in this. There will be challenges. When do the challenges, when does satanic enemy opposition come against you? Doesn't it come when you're most committed to walking with God? comes after you come back from a retreat or revival or a house church meeting where your friends get together and you say, you know what, we're going to re- let's, let's do this, let's do this. Let's pray together. Let's make it the prayer meeting. Let's wake up early. Let's seek the face of God. And then the attack comes. Someone in the house, whatever. It is. That's why, man, isn't it true a lot of times Sunday mornings? I say this all the time. I don't, uh, Sunday mornings, you get into a fight with your parents on the way to church. So you walk into worship and you're angry because there's an enemy who doesn't want you to give glory to God. You, opposition doesn't come when, oh, I'm, I'm trying to uh, get a brand new car and uh, I want to do this for the sake of my glory. And then Satan starts attacking you, giving you lies. Oh, you can't. He doesn't come that way. It has nothing to do. Verse, okay. Verse 1, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, okay, when the rebuilding for the glory of God starts... That's when he became angry. Same thing in verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the men of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's wall had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. The opposition comes when you begin advancing the glory of God. If you're not facing opposition from the enemy, because you're probably not on the walls rebuilding, Satan doesn't care about Sunday-only Christians, okay? Let's be honest about that. He doesn't care if you're going to come and you're going to live for your own glory. He's like, fine, have your way. That doesn't affect me anything. But as soon as you rise up to build for the glory of God, that's when he begins to oppose you. When you become a threat to the kingdom of darkness, that's when Satan begins to oppose you, when you start getting more involved in church. When someone says, hey, you know what, maybe God wants to use you in this way, and you begin taking steps in that way, the enemy begins to oppose you. When you start getting committed to church in a way that you haven't before, the enemy starts opposing you. And if you're not coming face to face with the devil every day, then it's probably because you and the devil are walking in the same direction and he doesn't care to distract you from that. He doesn't care about nominal Christians. He doesn't care about Sunday churchgoers. He doesn't care about you if you don't pose a threat to his kingdom. What does that mean? Verse 4, after we hear all of these ridicule and taunt, verse 4, hear us, O God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. That's not a nice prayer. That's not a gospel-driven prayer right there. He's saying, hey, God, these haters, hey, Uh, Don't forgive them for their sins. Jesus said the opposite. Forgive them for they do not know what they do. Nehemiah is saying, smite them, kill them, take them to hell. These guys are awful. That's what he's saying. Why? Because Nehemiah understands that they're not opposing the people of God. They're opposing the God of these people. And so Nehemiah is saying, God, your glory is at stake. You need to do something about this because we cannot fight against them. This battle is not against flesh and blood. God, you need to do something. You deal with the haters. If I can say, if you're facing opposition from the enemy and challenges and hardship and problems to the rebuild, it's not because you're awesome, even though you may be pretty sweet. It's because you represent a God who is awesome. And he's the one that the enemy is fighting against. 
Nothing that the enemy wants more. Two things, and they're one and the same. He wants to win, and he wants God's glory to be taken away. Like, and I, you know, you understand this. If you're a fan of a football team or a baseball team, anytime you idolize something, you will demonize the other thing, right? And so growing up in Washington, D.C., in Virginia, in the shadow of D.C., all of us idolized the most important things in, 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 in D.C., the Washington Redskins, the NFL football team, and politics. And so we idolized the Redskins, and so we demonized the opposite, or the Dallas Cowboys. The, our two favorite teams, we'd say this all the time, our two favorite teams on Sunday morning when football season's taking place are the Washington Redskins and whoever's playing the Dallas Cowboys. We didn't care who it was. We didn't care if it was the San Diego Chargers or the Los Angeles Rams. We didn't care if it was the, I don't know, whatever football team it was. As long as they were playing against Dallas, we wanted them to win. The greatest day for us was when the Redskins would win and the Cowboys would lose. Actually, an even greater day is when the Redskins would beat the Cowboys in a game. Why? Because the victory of the Redskins and the defeat of the Cowboys are one and the same thing. And I, even if I didn't know if I'd never met that person before, if I saw somebody walking down the street or walking in a church, they, well, they wouldn't walk in the church with a cowboy hat on because they know better. But if I saw someone with a cowboy hat or a cowboy jersey on, I would look at them and I'd be like, those guys, they dumb. They don't know anything. They're foolish. They're rotten. Even, even if they were the sweetest person, even if they're the nicest person, the most generous person, I'd look at them because of who they represent and I'd be drinking the haterade already. This is what Nehemiah is saying. The attack is not against you. Even though you're a great person, even though you've got great gifts, you don't care about it. The attack against the God that you represent. And the more you fight for God's glory, the more there will be opposition that rises up against you at every step of the journey. It's important that you know this because some of you are facing this kind of opposition and you need to realize if it is a fight against God's glory in my life, then I'm not going to just try harder in order to win. I need to bring God into the equation. And some of you need to know this because you're not facing opposition and you realize, holy cow, maybe my life isn't reflecting the glory of God and fighting for the glory of God the way that it ought to. Because the second thing that we see is that opposition will mount and get stronger the more you begin to fight for God's glory. Last thing we see then. Expecting opposition is one thing. Overcoming it is another. You need to overcome it. I could go in many different directions with this thought here, but I'll just say, um, there's a basketball player named Rajan Rondo. He plays for the New Orleans Pelicans. He's a decent player, but whenever the playoffs come, he becomes a whole nother beast. He becomes this like superstar that leads his team to the next level. They call it playoff Rondo. No one understands it, but then here's what, here's what, here's what people say. He is so smart. He's like a coach on the floor that he knows everything that the other team is going to do before they do it. In fact, when they were playing against, I forget who they just beat. They beat them four games without the other team winning a single game, four games to zero. He said he was calling out the other team's plays before they even ran them. He was, he was doing all of these things, and, and so they say he's, he's so smart that he knows the other team's tactics so that when you have to play seven games against another team, he's got them figured out already. But it's one thing to know what they're going to do. You can know that a team is going to dunk on you all you want. If you can't stop it, it doesn't mean anything. So knowing, as G.I. Joe says, is just half the battle. You also have to know how to overcome. So knowing what the enemy is going to do is crucial so that you can be prepared for it, but you also have to know how to overcome the work of the enemy. So Nehemiah gives four things that we do. The first thing, you, we, we've touched on this already, verse 4. Hear us, O our God, for we are despised. The first thing, what happens when we're attacked, when we're oppressed, when we face opposition because you're fighting for the glory of God? At risk of sounding trite and redundant, the first thing is you have to pray. When you face the opposition, you've got to pray. And I know three out of four weeks we've talked about prayer. The reason we talk about 
prayer three out of four weeks, but three out of four chapters deal with prayer in Nehemiah. He's saying, I want you to be crystal clear as I record this in my journal that the only reason the walls were rebuilt was because of God's glory was at stake and we fought on the battlefield of our knees in order that God's walls would be rebuilt. Sometimes, guys, we have to keep on hearing things until we begin to live it out because you don't know it Olivia always says this, you don't know it unless you show it. What's the first thing we need to do when we face opposition? We got to pray. Do you know it? Yeah, I know it. We've heard it three times. No, no, no. You don't know it until you show it, until you actually get to that place in prayer. Again, Satan doesn't care. The enemy doesn't care about you unless you begin to fight for the glory of God. It's like Sunday morning. It always happens. This morning at 5 in the morning at our house, I don't know why it happened, sprinklers started going off. I was like, what in the world? Sprinklers go off all the time on, on, on Sunday, uh, Sunday morning. But we had some people over yesterday, and maybe a sprinkler head got turned the wrong way. But it started like pat, 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 pat all over our, our house. I woke up. I was like, what in the world is that? And I waited. I heard it again. I was like, oh, man. I thought about my day. I was like, man, tonight is going to go until 8 at night. I'm at church all day. I thought, man, the enemy wants to make me tired today so I can be cranky, so I can be mean. I saw, I understand, this is, it always happens. My computer breaks down on Saturday night. Get into an argument with the kids or with Olive on Saturday night or Sunday morning. It always happens that way. But I'm preaching this sermon today, so I'm ready. I tried to go back to sleep, and I was like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to go back to sleep cranky. So I said, sucker, you better rise up off me. I got an hour extra to pray today for my church and for my people. You can't stop me. You can't slow. First thing, man, when opposition arises, you got to fight in prayer. Don't just roll over and say, oh, it's so hard. I'm so discouraged. I'm so afraid. You rise up to fight in prayer. It's the first thing that Nehemiah does. His first reaction isn't, I'm going to trade insult with insult and barb with barb. I'm, I'm going to retaliate. He says, this is my retaliation. I'm going to go to my God in prayer, and he's going to do what I cannot do on my own. It's the first thing. How do you fight? How do you overcome? You pray. It's the first thing. Second thing is you have to strengthen where you are vulnerable. What does that mean? Verse 13, therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places. There are places in every wall that are lower than others, that are exposed, that the enemy wants to come and infiltrate your life in those areas. You have to know that the enemy will attack you in those places. He will attack you in those places because he knows that he can get you to fall easier there than it is when the walls are high. Where are those places in your life? I struggle because I want boys to like me. And if a boy gives me attention, then I'll quit doing my quiet time. I'll stop coming to church if the right boy gives me attention. I'll stop going to SNF. Some of you do this. Oh, I got a boyfriend. I got a girlfriend. I'm not coming to church anymore. Why? Oh, I don't need it anymore. I got all the support that I need. The enemy uses these things because he knows where you're weak. He knows where you're weak. If your family is an idol, he'll attack you there. He knows the places in your life where lust attacks you, where if the approval of the right people comes, that you will abandon rebuilding the walls of God. If the right people say, you know what, you shouldn't do that, that you'll abandon your rebuilding project for it. He knows. You need to know that, and you need to strengthen these areas in your life, not only the the, the places, but the times. When are you most vulnerable to sin? I know when I'm most vulnerable. It's when I'm tired, when I've been around people all day long. It's when I've just finished a, a, a great ministry thing, whether it be a, a conference, a revival, whatever it is, and, and Satan slips this lie into me, says, you, don't, you can let your guard down just a little bit. God's used you. You deserve something. So you go and you do whatever you want. I know where it is in my life. You don't need to pray today. God's, God's doing good things. You don't need to pray. I know where it is in my life. When I'm stressed, when I've got a lot of things on my plate, I'm susceptible to the enemy in those times. Do you know when you're tempted? When it's late at night for some of you, when you're alone with somebody, when you're in a place you ought not be, in an apartment, in a house that does not belong to you, that you should not be in. You know 
And the enemy wants to attack you because he wants to rob God from the glory that he deserves that you're trying to give to him. He knows so many people have been tripped up and ensnared because I say this all the time. Old Testament, you know, many a great man and woman in the Old Testament, you know why they fell so much? One, they didn't listen to the advice of older, mature believers. They compromised with idols. And the third reason I think this is crippling a generation is because they could not get their opposite gender relationships surrendered to the Lord. Premarital sex. Compromise. Pornography. It sears their conscience so that when they close their eyes to pray, all they feel is guilt. And all of their prayer time is, God, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me, so that we cannot take ground for the kingdom of God. People of God, you need to recognize where you're weak, where you're vulnerable, and rise up. The third thing that he says is you need to lean on each other. Okay, lean on each other. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. Said half of them are working, the other half are facing the other way, and they're, they're ready to fight. If my boy is attacked, if my sister's attacked, I'm going to fight for him. Okay, you need people like that who are going to fight for you in the places where you are vulnerable. Do you have people who are fighting for you, fighting with you? Do you have people that you are fighting for, defending? When the trumpet sounds, will you rise up to fight for the glory of God, even if it's in the life of another person? And then the last thing, we see this in verse, uh, verse uh, 14. The last thing is remember the Lord and fight. Okay. Remember the Lord and fight. This is what he says, middle of verse 14. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. And I wish, I, I, I wish that I could have been here in this place. And people are all naysaying and they're all doubting and they're all hating and they're all obstructing and they're talking about all the things that are doing God, uh, that, that, that uh, trying to bring down this building project. North, south, east, and west, everyone is coming against them. They said, we're going to fight, we're going to kill you. Nehemiah doesn't back down. He doesn't sound the trumpet and say, retreat, let's go back into our homes. He says, remember God. Remember God who is great and awesome and mighty. He is the one they're rising against, and he is the one who will fight for you. Remember him. I have uh, mentioned this before, but several years ago, maybe about five years ago, uh, there was some of our kids when our oldest daughter, Manny, was three, or she might have been four, but she had some friends over who were three or four years old, and they're playing something. I don't know what they were playing. They were running around in our, in our, in our house, and uh, one of the girls, uh, Evelyn Kwok, she's one of the girls in, in our Kingdom Keepers, um, she came running into my, into my room, and on my desk, there was a wooden cross, and she said to me, Pastor David, she said in Korean, she said, David Moksanim, why do you, why you got a cross on your desk? <laughs> uh, I said, yeah, I, mean, you know, I didn't know what to say. She kind of was kind of taken aback. You, you have a cross, you have a cross. No one asks you why you have a cross on your desk. And I said, uh, so I can remember Jesus. And she said, why, because you forget him? And I said, yeah, you know, sometimes I do. Sometimes I do forget Jesus. And I need to be reminded to remember him. As you rebuild and opposition comes, do you sometimes forget Jesus? Do you sometimes forget God amidst the rubble? You look at the rubble and you're like, man, I don't think we can do this anymore. Man, I think this is too hard. We don't have the resources. We don't have what it takes. I'm not sure that we could do this. That's what the people of God who are causing division, who are discouraged, who are fearful, were saying. Nehemiah, we can't do this anymore. I don't think we can do it. His response, remember God. He is great and awesome. He is mighty. 
Remember Jesus. Remember Calvary. Remember everything that God has done for you. Remember that Jesus Christ came into our world and he took all of the opposition. The opportune time came at Gethsemane when Jesus prayed, if it is possible, Father, let this cup pass from me because this cup of your wrath that has been boiled to a, the, the utmost by all of the fires of hell, wanting me to give up and to quit and to throw in the towel. He took all of that opposition and at the cross, he overcame every fear, every threat, every ridicule, everything, even the abandonment of his closest followers, division, discouragement, and he overcame all of that. What does that mean? Jesus rose from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What does that mean? That everything Jesus did, he not only did to show you the way, but as the down payment the Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead, living in you, living in me. The overcoming Spirit lives within us. The fighting Spirit lives within you, child of God. Not a spirit of quitting, not a spirit of throwing in the towel, not a spirit that says, okay, fine, you have your way, enemy, but a spirit that overcomes is living in us. This is who we have in us. This is our challenge. This is why we can rise up to fight because a battle is not against you and me. It's against the one who lives in us, who's far greater than the opposition of the enemy. He says, remember God. Remember him. And you rise up to fight. But not only that, why should you fight? He says, you fight for your brothers. You fight for your sons. You fight for your daughters. You fight for your wives. And you fight for your homes. Listen, you think this is just a psychological battle, psychological warfare against you? If you give up, then you give up on the people around you and you give up on these homes and these walls and the very glory of God. That's what he's saying. You fight for so much more than you know. Do you understand this? That every single one of us is fighting for something so much bigger than we know. When I feel temptation, when I feel oppression, in my moment of weakness, I always, for whatever reason, as I pray, in the moment of your weakness, you give me grace to do your will. I pray, God, help me, strengthen me. And I think of Olivia, and I think of my kids. I think of the man that I want to be for Elijah and Manny and Elise. I think about the man I want to be as I pastor my church. I need to rise up, and I need to fight with every, every fiber of energy and strength that the Spirit of God would give to me. Because I'm not living for myself. You don't just live for yourself. You live for your youth students. You live for your house church. You live for your families. And he says, rise up and fight for them. You rise up and fight for them. Don't fall down. Don't give in. Because it ain't just about you. You got people who depend upon you. You need to rise up and you need to fight. I, I don't know if this helps or not, but yesterday I was watching parts of the NFL draft. And the one, one player, and, and some of you would agree with me, but the, the one player who was drafted, uh, so college players get chosen by NFL teams to become professionals, their dream comes true. Uh, one person in particular that I think many of us would resonate and we feel most excited that he was chosen, a guy named, uh, I forget his name, what was his name again? Shaquem Griffin. Shaquem Griffin. He got drafted. I think the reason why some of us would get excited is because he got drafted by the Seattle Seahawks and his brother plays for their team, Shaquille Griffin, twin brother. The other reason we'd get excited is because he came from right here, UCF. I don't know where he went to high school, but he graduated from UCF. But the most important reason I think we'd get excited, especially I got excited as watching it last night, thinking about today, is because from the time he was born, he faced opposition in his life. He was born with this uh, birth defect that um, it, it's called amniotic band syndrome that caused pain in his hand. I don't know exactly all the, the medical uh, background and stuff, but he said when he was four years old, he had so much pain in his hand that he took a knife from the kitchen and he tried to cut his fingers off because there was so much pain. And so at the age of four, his mom took him to the doctor and had his left hand amputated. But she said, listen, you are no different than your brother, than any of your siblings. 
I'm not going to treat you any different. I'm not going to treat you any better, any worse. You are exactly the same as them. There are no obstacles in your life. Okay? I didn't teach anyone in my family to make excuses. There are no limitations to what you can do. You rise up and you fight, boy. And so he did. He said, I'm going to be a football player, a one-handed football player. When he was eight years old, he played in this football league, and an opposing coach said to him, this league is for people with two hands. And he said, at that time, though he discouraged me, he said, I made a promise that I'm never going to give up, that I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for my dreams. As he got older, he played in teams, and people started saying things like, you should be in a different league than us. Why are you like that? What's wrong with you? Um, they would say, you're making us uncomfortable. We should take it easy on him. And he heard all of these things, all of these haters trying to deconstruct him. But he said, I'm going to keep on fighting. Along the way, he met other boys and girls who had been, para- had been amputated at their knee, knee down, kids with no legs, no arms, one hand just like him. And he said, I'm going to keep on fighting. And I'm going to encourage them to keep on fighting. He got to University of Central Florida, played on the football team. But he got demoted to the practice squad. That's the guys who practice with the team, but they never play in the games. All the while, his brother was soaring through the charts, making it, got drafted by the Seattle Seahawks. At that same time, he was cut from the team at UCF. He said, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to quit. So for his fourth year, this past year, he fought and he gave his best. He made the team and he became the conference player of the year. He got drafted in the fifth round this past weekend. And they asked him, what does this mean to you? And he, he basically told you what I told you. He told his story. And he said, I knew that if I quit, that I'm quitting on all these other kids who are looking up to me, wondering, can a guy like that really make it? Or am I less of a person, less of a player, because I don't have the things that everyone else has? He said, there was no chance in me that I was going to quit because there are people like, and he started naming these girls, these boys. He said, that's me, that's me, that's me. And if I quit on my dreams, then I'm quitting on their dreams also. God is saying, don't quit. There is opposition all around. There will be opposition even more until the day you see Jesus, but don't quit. Don't give up. You're part of something so much bigger. If you're a parent, don't quit. When that alarm goes off at 8.30 and you don't want to come to church, you think about your kids. You think about your kids. You think about the fact that they need to come and worship. Don't give up because you're fighting for them. You think about the things, man, I'm serving our youth ministry, but I'm getting tired. I'm serving my house church, but I want to quit. I want to throw in the towel. You think about who you're fighting for. It's not just about you. Every one of us is connected to other people. Your life is not your own. There will be opposition. You've got to recognize. You've got to be prepared for it. You've got to know how it's to come. But you also need to know how to overcome it because you're fighting, and you're not just fighting for yourself. You're fighting for countless other people. It's the glory of God. Let's rise. Let's build together. Let's pray. I love that Nehemiah does that. He says, remember God, but remember people. Can I tell you something that the Bible says through and through? It says you cannot love God and not love people. Every time you love God, you're loving other people better. Every time you rise up to fight for God's glory, you rise up to fight for the glory of God in the battlefield of other people's hearts as well. There's a soldier in every one of us. There's a rebuilder in every one of us. The question is, will you choose to fight? Will you choose to rebuild? That's in every single one of us. Opposition is going to come. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? We're going to pray. We're going to strengthen our vulnerabilities. We're going to lean on each other. 
We're going to remember God, remember people. We're going to rise up and we're going to fight. There's work to be done. Glory of God to be spread in advance throughout the earth abroad. Let's pray. Lord, help me to fight. Help me to rebuild. Help me to not give up. Lord, here's where I'm vulnerable. Here's where I'm weak. Help me, Lord. Here's what I need to do. Here's where I get tempted. Lord, strengthen me. Lord, I know I need to come to pray. Help me to, help me to do this. Help me to find three people around me that will pray together, fighting for the honor of Christ in my life, in our world. Be lifted high. Let's pray together for a couple moments right now, responding to the word of God. Lord, I need your help. I want to be a builder of walls that are broken. Let's pray together for a few moments. Pray not only for yourself, pray for those around you. Pray for other rebuilders around you. We stand on the wall together. Let's pray together for a few moments. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for the reminder this morning that there will be opposition, but you've called us to fight. Thank you that the spirit who lives within us is not a spirit that quits, but a spirit that keeps on fighting, challenging, convicting us to rise each time we fall. Thank you that Jesus didn't die the most criminal and awful death the world would ever know in order that we would roll over when the enemy attacks. But he died so that we might rise victorious in you. Help us to do that. Teach us to fight for the glory of God. Teach us to fight for the joy of our brothers and sisters, our mothers, our fathers, our husbands, our wives, our homes, our church. Help us to rise and fight. Lord, teach us to rise and rebuild, beginning now. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray this all in Jesus' name.